You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology department. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. I would like to begin by acknowledging that Concordia University is located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Ganyagahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which we gather today. Joe Jage, or Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. I'm your host, Marie. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Jessica Agathangelou about her paper, The Failure of Drug Criminalization, Decriminalization and Harm Reduction as Viable Approaches to Addiction. Hey Jessica, how's it going? Hi, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Jessica holds an honors bachelor's degree in sociology with a minor in law and society and is completing her master's degree in sociology at Concordia University. She's interested in criminal justice reform, the sociology of addiction, drug policy reform, critiques of capitalism and social justice. Her current research focuses on how the stigmatization of drugs and drug users poses challenges to the deployment of effective and accessible harm reduction programs and resources. In addition to studying at Concordia, Jessica works as a specialized educator in a group home for individuals with special needs and as a research assistant on the Hermes team at the research chair on gambling. Personally, I'm really looking forward to diving into this one, as I think that there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding when it comes to issues of drug abuse and addiction. Would you be able to talk about what you wanted to look at with this research? Sure. So I have, uh, you know, a similar opinion as you, that there's a lot of misconceptions about drug addiction. And in my paper, I pose the research question, are decriminalization and harm reduction better approaches for treating addiction compared to the current criminalization of drugs in Canada? So where I came to this question was with the thought that the way that addiction and drug users are treated in Canada and in many other countries in the world is with the traditional criminalization approach. And rather than treat the actual problem at hand that's causing addiction or causing individuals to choose to use drugs, the solution is punishment, which doesn't actually solve any of the underlying problems. Yeah. Okay. So then kind of criminalizing the act of having an addiction, having a mental health issue or any way you want to classify it versus seeing it as like, as what it is. So how has the fact that drug use and possession is criminalized affected how addiction is conceptualized and like viewed in society? When it becomes criminalized, it comes to be seen as something that's inherently bad or something that's wrong and dangerous. And there, there are dangers to using drugs, but there's also a lot of dangers to other everyday activities, such as driving. You know, that's a very big example that there's a lot of danger to it, but it doesn't mean we criminalize it. We just teach people how to do it safely. And in the context of drugs, for drug users, when it's criminalized, they come to be seen as as just as that, they're seen as only drug users and people tend to forget that they're people and there's a lot of other stuff going on in their lives that contribute to these decisions. Mm -hmm. I think that it's easy to assume that our legal and social stances on drugs, like what you've just mentioned, have always been the same, but you also mentioned in your paper that it's not the case. 
Um, what is Canada's historical context with drug criminalization? Well, prior to 1908, drugs weren't explicitly criminalized, but there was stigma and rhetorical shaming around it. And when the Canadian Pacific Railway was being constructed, there was an influx of Chinese immigrants coming in for work. And at the same time, this railway was also being used as a hub to smuggle opium. And what this, what this resulted in was an association between the Chinese immigrants and the opium and the opium overdoses. And as a result, there were the anti-immigration riots in 1907 that were fueled by anti-Asian uh, rhetoric. And as a result, a lot of primarily Chinese businesses were being impacted. A lot of them were also opium manufacturers. And as a result of the destruction caused by these riots, there was a, a commission set up to review it. And once they realized that a lot of these businesses were manufacturing opium, there was disapproval for this and it was seen as something that was bad and harmful. So as a result of this, in 1908, the first Opium Act was passed to criminalize the manufacturing of opium. So it was only limited to manufacturing at first, but then come 1911, there were amendments made to target individuals for using drugs, but more specifically that police were given more power to search and seize drugs, as well as the biggest offense that was added to these amendments was the found in, where if an individual was found in an opium den or a manufacturing site, they were automatically assumed to be a user. Oh, so like penalized just by association also. And then there's that huge racial aspect also. Right. And it was targeting the Chinese specifically because they were seen to be producing it the most. But because of these acts, use uh, among Chinese declined because there was the fear of being deported or jailed. So in these cases, it was primarily white people using these using opium, but it was immigrants, Chinese, anyone who wasn't white Canadian that was specifically targeted with these, with these acts. Well, sounds like not much has changed. <laughs> no, definitely not much has changed. It's just branched out to anyone that's, that's not white. Right. I mean, you mentioned that they initially targeted, uh, you know, um, the, the manufacturers. What was the purpose of criminalizing these drugs? Like, what was the switch between 1908 and after? Well, the, from that association initially between Chinese and opium, as time continued to pass, this association branched out to any immigrant. And this was also at a time where Canada was going through its nation building project and constructing itself as a specific kind of nation with a specific kind of citizen. And through this, there was also the moral reformers that were generating moral panic by creating this association between immigrants and uncleanliness, crime and drugs. As a result of this association, there was this idea to separate these individuals and other them, designate them as the other by association through drugs and criminality, which was unfounded. And so this othering process served as a tool to differentiate anyone who wasn't aligning with these 19th century bourgeois values that were being integrated into this Canada nation building project. That's crazy. So these people were like marginalized on so many levels, immigration, visible minority, perceived addiction, or like that's, that's intense. Right. And 
there didn't even need to be, you know, any proof or evidence of, of them using drugs. It was just an association that, oh, if you're an immigrant, we're going to assume that there's this poverty, drug use, and criminality that goes with this. So does criminalizing drugs and their users actually work? In my opinion, and through my research, I found that no. Um, two main arguments with criminalization is that it deters drug use and it'll lead to cessation of drug use. But through my research, I found these two arguments are not true. They're found to be false, primarily because incarceration or punishment isn't going to stop somebody from using drugs. It doesn't take away the initial cause or reason that someone uses or abuses drugs. If you're put in prison, there's usually no or very limited or underfunded resources to deal with the root causes. And the assumption is that by being incarcerated or by potentially facing punishment, this will deter users from continuing to use. But, you know, this argument doesn't necessarily make sense when you think of the potential of facing punishment or all the other underlying causes that lead you to the position that you're in in life or the reason that you choose to do anything, whether it's drugs or, or crime, going to prison isn't going to change those initial reasons. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Like our current opioid epidemic that's like going on in Canada, despite having these criminal uh, criminalized drug policy, like obviously that doesn't not helping um but you were mentioning like all these different um social factors that would you know drive an individual to use and we also talked about like humanizing the users of these drugs as like a way to you know foster understanding and hopefully you know get more social cohesion um would you be able to like maybe talk about what some of those factors those social factors would be sure well in thinking of these social factors, if you think of the society that we live in today and for for many years, under capitalism, we live in a very constricted society where everything is oriented around work. You grow up, what are you going to be when you're older? Everything is structured around your job or going to school. And when you live in a society like this, oftentimes other needs are neglected when the economy and labor are prioritized as the most important thing in one's life and in society as a whole. So in these cases, it causes a lot of people to feel alienated and to feel alone. And when you feel like your life is only, your life's, your only life purpose is really to go to work and make money for other people. And then your own time, your own personal time is very limited to do the things you actually enjoy and feel purpose in. This leaves a lot of emptiness in yourself and you can resort to doing anything. It doesn't necessarily need to be drugs, but you're going to seek joy or release in something, whether it be drugs or sports or anything that someone feels that that helps them or alcohol. A lot of people like to have a drink after work and that's very socially acceptable. But when it comes to drugs, usually there's, there's the stigma towards it and it's seen as not acceptable to use as recreation or, or release. And with these social factors, there's also, there's also psychological factors in the sense of trauma or anything that's, that's disturbed you in life that can contribute to it as well. But I think the social factor is really important as well, when you think about how 
life can be so constricting. And when you're policed on what you can and can't do in terms of what you can ingest and with the contradictions of you, it's okay to consume alcohol or to smoke cigarettes and now cannabis in Canada. But when it comes to other substances that are equally, if sometimes not even as harmful as alcohol can be, those are criminalized and, and you're, you're punished for using them and marginalized. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that that contradiction between cannabis just a couple of years ago, not being legal, and now now it is. And that's such an, a crazy kind of social shift where you could be, some people are still in jail or still have like things on their record from from these old drug policies. Yeah, that's a big problem too, you know. And But I think it's an important shift of switching to legalizing cannabis because it does open the conversation more for other substances, but I'm not sure how close we are to actually achieving that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a, uh, maybe a harder uh, argument to have with people, but one, one that is worth having. Definitely. So then since criminalizing drugs uh, doesn't really work, what are the alternatives? Well, I, in my paper, I propose decriminalization as the legal alternative. So with decriminalization, there's a few options. It can, it typically means the decriminalization of simple possession of drugs and paraphernalia that were previously criminalized. There's the minimalist approach where this calls for an end to the prosecution of simple possession and small scale drug dealing. The maximalist approach conceptualizes decriminalization as a combatant to the problems produced by criminalization and its enforcement. And then somewhere in the middle, decriminalization entails the medicalization of drug abuse, where physicians replace police officers and treatment replaces punishment. At this point, though, I would even go so far as to say legalization would be even better and more proactive because then these substances can be regulated and there's much smaller opportunity for contamination, especially today with the fentanyl crisis. Is is harm reduction the same as decriminalization? It's not the same, but I would say that they do go hand in hand. Harm reduction is more an approach of how to minimize the harms associated with drugs. And it takes a more pragmatic approach where it looks at drugs as there, it's a reality in society and people are always going to use drugs. And rather than criminalize and punish them for it and try to make it go away, we should just accept it and give these individuals the tools to minimize harms associated with drug use and to also provide a community and a group of people that support them in a non-judgmental way and give them the opportunity to recover in whatever way that they, they see fit, whether it be abstinence or in moderation. So there's like more agency um, placed on the the user versus creating an overarching like system? Yes, it's more to provide them with tools or resources to use safely. So for example, there can be an overdose prevention site where users can go and they'll be able to inject drugs safely. And if there's a case of overdose, there's there's someone there to help them. They're also at these kinds of resources, they also have they also have access to other kinds of uh, rehabilitation, whether they'd like to see somebody to talk about or would like access to, to rehabs. They have, it opens a door for other opportunities 
and it also gives them a chance to to keep using the in the way that they are until they're ready to seek recovery if that's what they want. Okay. Yeah. Are we are we seeing like harm reduction models being implemented uh, in Canada already? Yes. It, I believe that the first safe injection site was in Vancouver, and we do have one. I believe one or two here in in Montreal. But there is the problem with funding, how long there's going to be funding and how much, as well as there's the problem of not, it's still criminalized to have drugs on site. So that does limit the way that these um, these programs can work because they're, they're limited in how they can test the drugs or handle the drugs because the drug itself is still, is still criminalized and they have to seek special permission from the government to be exempt from, from the criminalization in these, in these buildings. Right. That's kind of a weird loophole then. Right. So it becomes tricky to, to navigate the legal system when trying to provide this kind of care. And then the government's usually not very available or respondent (laughs) to these issues. Right. Yeah. It seems like kind of one of their last priorities. Right. I remember was it two years ago, maybe three years ago, um, they started uh, releasing like naloxone kits. um, And at first they were pretty hard to access, but then I believe I read something that now you can get, they're way more accessible in, in like, uh, like cities like Montreal. Yes, their access as of 2019, it became more accessible, but the problem is that in more remote areas, it can be more difficult to access because usually you need to get it from a physician and at the same time, I in Montreal, I believe it's more accessible downtown, but in areas like the, for like the West Island, for example, I don't believe that many pharmacies carry it to just give out. Because I remember even a few years ago there, I was told that pharmacies give out safe injection kits with clean syringes, um, alcohol swabs to disinfect. But when I had gone to a pharmacy near me, I live in the West Island and I asked just to see, and they said, they don't, they don't do that here. So it's even in areas that you would think are more, are more urban or more closer to the city, they don't necessarily have these tools to give out to people. Yeah. So if, if you are like using drugs, then you and if you want to like uh, minimize the risks to yourself, you're kind of being forced to only kind of frequent this like one area of the city. Like, you, yeah, it's kind of like limiting your mobility in a way, right? Or you're forced to you know make your own kit, which can become quite costly. That too. I just want to go back to the decriminalization point because um, you were talking about in your paper Portugal as a case study that had implemented a decriminalized kind of system a a while ago. Would you, would you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. So in 2001, Portugal decided to decriminalize all illicit drugs. And this was brought about because overdose rates were very, very high in Portugal. And they tried the criminalization approach. They tried the American war on drugs approach and they found it wasn't working. It was making things worse. So after having a committee of different health professionals, legal professionals, and politicians, they decided that decriminalization would be the best approach, not only for users, but for the country as a whole. 
And what this did was it brought the overdose rate down very, very low. And rather than face uh, punishment, criminal sanctions for drug use, if caught with drugs, you present yourself in front of a committee who will assess your situation to see whether the use is problematic for for yourself. And usually what happens is that these individuals will have the opportunity to seek treatment if they want, or they'll be given community service if if they feel like that's what's necessary. But for most cases, people are just let go. You know, they just want to talk to them and see how they are and see if they need any help with anything. And if they do, they provide that help. And so it's been mostly successful then? Yes, it has been successful, not only for users, but for everyone as a whole, because because of this, you know, there's less people in jail and more people are given opportunity rather than being stigmatized for their drug use. So oftentimes, uh, even at these committees, people will be given the opportunity to have a small business loan and, and get themselves started on something. So rather than be exiled from society for their drug use, they're reintegrated regardless of drug use. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, because it's got to have a, a negative like mental effect on the person who's being stigmatized. If you're being told that, you know, you have this issue, you can't, you can't basically play with us, you know, exactly. Yeah. And it seems like kind of a catch 22. If you can't get a job to, you know, find any other means than to, through crime, like, it seems like a vicious cycle. Exactly. And even back to how we were discussing before of these underlying causes, if you don't have a purpose, if you don't feel that you have a purpose in life, it's going to be very difficult for you to branch out and do different things. So by giving these individuals an opportunity to have a business or any kind of job that they'll feel purposeful in, it's very inspiring to them and it gives them motivation to do to do other things in life. And they're not saying, you know, you have to stop doing drugs. They're saying, well, we're giving you other stuff to do. And if you want to use drugs, you, you can use drugs. Have any other countries adopted that since? I, I believe the Czech Republic also, but I might be wrong. I, feel, I heard that recently. But otherwise, uh, I know Vancouver is pushing to decriminalize drugs there. And it passed over there, but they have to wait for the federal government's approval. But we'll see what happens with that. But that could be a very good segue for other provinces to start moving in that direction. Yeah, a lead by example. Uh, you were mentioning that since it's such a social issue, not the only like solution can come from like legislation and all that. Is there something like what can like the average person do? You know, the person who's not working in law, the person who's not working in these you know frontline kind of organizations. Like, what are ways in order to make it a better situation for for those affected by these policies? You know, it is tough because even if the law changes, a lot of people's minds aren't necessarily going to change just because the law did. So I think it's really important to educate and show people that addiction isn't necessarily how they think it is and drugs and drug use isn't how it's portrayed in the media and on TV. Oftentimes it's it's shown in a very negative light and shown in a way that it's criminal, very dangerous, very bad. If you do it, you'll get in trouble and you'll you'll ruin your life, but that's most definitely not the case and most people that use drugs 
don't have a, an abuse problem. Most of it is recreational. So I think it's important to try and shift public understandings of what addiction is and what drugs are. Oftentimes there's this idea that drugs and drug users are objectively bad, but this notion of them being bad is very subjective and was initiated by people in power who had ulterior motives to push a racialized social order and to other immigrants in order to further a specific Canadian identity. So in this sense, when things are labeled a certain way as bad, I think that people need to try to think beyond this and understand why was it labeled as bad and is it really bad? Because back to alcohol, you know, alcohol is widely socially accepted and integrated into many social events and social moments. But when you look at drugs, it's villainized and seen as a moral defect. So I think it's important to understand, you know, the two aren't so, so different in terms of them being substances that are potentially dangerous and require careful use. And it goes the same for, for users. These aren't bad people that are inherently evil. There are people just like anyone else who choose to use a substance. They might abuse it, but that is not necessarily rooted in them as a person, but largely has to do with other social problems that are causing them to, to resort to drug abuse. Yeah. And that point you made about alcohol, it's, it's also so important to like, to think about. And I think that, you know, in sociology and anthropology, we think about these things a lot is to question these like normalized understandings of the world and the way it's organized. But, you know, as far as I know, I don't think there was a widespread prohibition of alcohol in Canada, but in the United States, for a while there that was that was like a moral defect to to drink and to brew your own alcohol and now it's like you said it's integrated into any kind of celebration exactly so i i'm wondering what uh, what led you to be interested in in this topic of like drug policy reform and addiction from a sociology a sociological perspective well in my personal life, I've had a family member that abuses drugs and it put a really big strain on our relationship. And I've seen, you know, how other people have treated that situation. And it always gave me a lot of cause to think, you know, what's the reason behind this? Because this individual didn't necessarily have a specific traumatic event that most people would think triggers addiction, but it was more of a contribution of a lot of different life forces. So that was my initial interest in it. And then as I grew, grew older and was a teenager, I had two different close friends and two different periods. They both passed away from a drug overdose. So that was really upsetting. And in both cases, they were both left alone because the people were that were with them were afraid of getting in trouble. So, and, and a lot of people don't know that you can call 911 if someone's overdosing, you're not, you're not going to get in trouble. They're not going to get in trouble. It's the right thing to do. But it's this fear of punishment that criminalization puts on drugs that causes people to just not call or to leave someone alone out of fear of themselves getting in trouble. So this really made me think about, you know, why... Why are we treating drugs and drug users as this sort of social pariah when 
it really requires a more humanistic and empathetic understanding and approach that treats them like humans and doesn't judge them for their drug use, but tries to provide a more realistic approach to their drug use that says, you know, I understand you're doing this and we need to provide the safety tools so that you can keep on living and it's not going to cause you to die. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And I'm really sorry to hear about your two friends and your family member. Um, yeah, that's, that's really rough. Thank you. But taking that, those life experience and then moving forward with it to, to really immerse yourself in this research to, you know, make it better for somebody else, I think is, is, uh, I mean, it's a hard thing, but it's a, that's a great thing. Um, the community aspect is, is so important. And how does the average person contribute to, you know, supporting this, this, uh, the cause, I guess, of uh, decriminalizing or just destigmatizing uh, drug use? That's a really great question. I think something that's really important is to stop using terms like crackhead to to refer to these individuals because it brings up a very specific image to people that's not the reality of everyday drug users. And I think it would be very important for the everyday person to do some do some research and try to see what addiction is actually like and what contributes to addiction as well as what they can do to better support those that they may know who have an addiction. It can be really hard to, to understand why someone might be doing this if, it's, if you think of it in a way that it's hurting them. It can be difficult to, to navigate a relationship with someone who does have an addiction. So I think it's important to understand that you can't force people to change and you can't put it on them to, to stop using drugs. People will only change when they, when they want to change. And the only thing you can do is support them and not judge them. I think that's all the time we have for today. I really, really appreciated talking with you today. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. I had a great time talking with you. I'm very happy that I was invited onto the show and uh, it's been really good. To read Jessica's or any of our other featured authors' works, be sure to check out Sasu's Facebook page or Instagram for more information. Stories for Montreal was produced with support from the Concordia Student Union, the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CJLO Radio Station. It was hosted and edited by me, Marie. Our sound design is by Multileander, and artwork by Allie Brown. You can catch our show on the CJLO Airways at cjlo.com or on their channel 1690 AM every Wednesday at 4 p.m. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.